All right, Esther chapter 4 is where we pick up tonight, and um, just basically by a very quick, uh, do a very quick review here real quick. Uh, we were introduced to, in chapter 1 to a king uh, by the name of whom? Xerxes. King James Version has Azarurus, but we like Xerxes because it's easier to say. And uh, Xerxes is a real-life king from Persian history. And um, I don't know if you ever got to see the movie or not, Frankie, but you ever get to see 300? Right now, so, you, but so, so you'll be ready to watch it now. But we talked about how that this was the same king that the 300 uh, uh, Spartans stood in the pass and fought. And so this is a real man from history. And uh, he, of course, threw a big party to build up everybody's resolve to go into Greece. And it turned uh, into a situation with, because evidently of drunkenness that he wanted his wife Vashti to come in and present herself in some kind of way. The Bible doesn't say what it was exactly, but it was not something that she felt like she could do, uh, possibly as a queen or as a woman. She refused the order of the king, and as a result of it, all pandemonium broke out. And what were they worried about, Roger? Yeah, they thought there would be a, just, just an uprising of women. They, they threw off their shackles and, and just, um, just turn out to be just hard people to live with. And we know that's never the case now. So we're thankful that the next... No. Um, so they decided that a decree needed to be uh, sent out across the, the nations according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians. Um, that uh, Vashti needed to be taken care of. And we're not sure exactly what happened to her, but she is now gone. And history tells us that Xerxes went and fought the battles he did in Greece, and then during this time period, he was finally defeated by the, Greece, the Grecian navy, and he came back to lick his wounds, and he was overcome with loneliness. And so he decided to do what? Upon the advice of his advisors. What's that? Find a wife. And so they basically did what? What was the way he was going to find a wife? All right. Brought him into the citadel there near Charleston. Um, no. And we talked about how in class, how that there were three houses. There was the house of the virgins, there was the house royal, and there was the house of the concubine and wives. And basically through this process, a virgin would leave the house, come to the house of the royals, and then... Uh, after she spent time with the king, she returned to the house of the concubines, and that was the process of what we might call this beauty contest. And in the process of this beauty contest, Esther, of course, uh, was brought in, and Esther was the daughter of Mordecai, and not her uh, daughter by birth, but because uh, Mordecai was her uncle, and his brother and, and his wife were killed, he adopted uh, Esther, and she became his daughter. And, uh, of course, he kept tabs on Esther and uh, wanted to make sure that uh, she was taken care of. And so he walked among uh, the walls of the city today or the walls of the palace to keep up with her. And that basically gets us through the first two chapters. We get to chapter 3 and are introduced to a man by the name of Haman. And you remember me telling you that during the Feast of Purim, when you hear the name Haman, what did the Jewish people do? They booed and hissed and stomped their feet and says, may this man's name be blotted out. They, you know, they hated Haman because of what he was going to do. And Haman, of course, uh, became 
Xerxes, prime minister, or his second in command, and the king sent out an order saying that whenever Haman walked by or passed by, that everybody was to bow before him. And uh, there was one person who did, Mordecai. And that made Haman mad. And instead of doing just what he should do to Mordecai, perhaps, he decided he was going to eliminate the entire Jewish race, which we estimate at this time there was probably 15 million Jews on the face of this earth there in the Persian Empire. Now, we had a good discussion about this last week, about why there may have been so much animosity between uh, Haman and Mordecai. And uh, this is all just speculation, but what did we decide last week, Michael? Because I know you would remember this. Amalekite. Yeah, Amalekite and Agag. He had Agag in his ancestry. Yeah, and they even talked about how in, in the um, uh, journeys of the Israelite people through the wilderness, how it was the Amalekites that came up and attacked them from the rear. And when they were defenseless, and God, on two different occasions, and I'm not going to go back to those verses now, but talked about how that uh, he would deal with the Amalekites, and this would be something that would be, um, be a problem from generation to generation. Well, evidently, we kind of see it rearing its ugly head here. I don't know for sure, uh, but you've got um, the descendants of Saul uh, and the descendants of Haggai button heads again here together. And it may just be that... Um, Haman just didn't like the Jews because he uh, was anti-Semitic, and even though they had equal rights in the land of Persia, uh, there was still even racial diversity back then. And so what did Haman tell the king he needed to do because of this hatred for the Jews? Kill them all. But how is he going about doing it? What was the first thing he did that that the whole feast gets its name from? He went into his office, if you will, his prime minister office, and he began to cast lots. Remember, pure means lots, stone, casting stones or casting lots. That's where the Jews get the name, the Feast of Purim, because the whole episode was based on how he rolled the dice, if you will. And it so happened, it may have been through the providence of God, that the date that was finally picked on as he rolled the dice or cast the stones was a whole year later. Um, And so the Jews would have plenty of time to prepare. But the date was picked, and the edict was sent out throughout the entire nation that on this particular day, that all the Jews would be killed. And, of course, this is going to make the Jews unhappy. But it even bewildered the other people that lived in the land, that why in the world should this great drastic measure be taking place? And they just didn't understand it. And as we talked about last week as we were closing that there was probably some other people who were, though they were uh, Persians by captivity, but, but foreigners by birth, they probably wondered, well, what's going to happen to us if this is happening to the Jews? But basically, that's where we left it off. In fact, verse 15 of chapter 3 says, uh, the last part of it, but the city, Sushan, was perplexed. So that's where we stopped last week. You've got the Jews, of course, upset, and the city confused. You got Haman wanting to kill all the Jews, and it's all because of Mordecai. And uh, Esther, of course, is the queen who is Mordecai's daughter. Now, before we get into the text of chapter 4, is there any questions or comments? Anything that I messed up on you want to change, or anything you want to add on to? Now, everybody's ready for the test now. 
When we have the test, we'll be ready to go. All right. Well, let's, let's look at chapter 4, <clears throat> beginning at verse 1. When Mordecai perceived that all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry. And, of course, this was the typical uh, way that Jews responded uh, to uh, heartache. Uh, they would, uh, we've heard the expression, sackcloth and ashes before, and they would sprinkle ashes on their head and uh, to symbolize that they're in mourning. Uh, the sackcloth was a, basically a, a bag they put on themselves. Uh, more than likely, it was made out of goat hair, and if it was made out of goat hair, that means it was the softest, plushest thing you ever wore. Oh, it, I don't know why in the world somebody, when they were in misery, wanted to make themselves more miserable, but that's basically what they did. Uh, they intensified their misery by putting on this sackcloth made out of goat hair and um, to show how sad and upset they were. And it says in the latter part of chapter 4, uh, in verse 1, that he cried with a loud and bitter voice or a bitter cry. And um, I don't know if you've ever uh, seen um, even people today in the Middle East, when something is bothering them greatly, when they're uh, grieving, say, example, a loved one died, either by Al-Qaeda killing them or even from a bomb from the U.S., uh, they'll do that, that loud, loud wailing. And so that's still common in the Middle East today, and that's probably something similar to Mordecai was uh, doing here. And it says in verse 2, And came before the king's gate, for none might enter into the king's gate, uh, uh, clothed with sackcloth. And so um, he was making a statement there. Uh, he, he couldn't come into their mourning, but he did show up there. And so he wanted everybody to know what was going on. And then verse 3 it says, In every province wheresoever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews, and fasting, and weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. A little interesting note here, the word for ashes here. Uh, in the original Hebrew, as literally spread ashes out like a bed. So there was more than just simply sprinkling ashes on their head. They literally laid down in a bed of ashes. And you can understand why they were so upset. I mean, they understood how the law of the Medes and the Persians worked. Uh, the way they looked at this, there was no way to get out of this. Everybody was going to die. And so you can understand and appreciate the fact how upset they were. So, um, any questions or comments? He sounds like something I'd said earlier, doesn't it? <laughs> I brought out the same point that in the book of jo in the book of uh, you got me thinking about Job now in the book of Esther, that God's name is not mentioned, but yet in all of this, prayer is never mentioned. Now, one can make the argument that in verse um, three, where it says there was a great mourning among the Jews and fasting. That fasting may be synonymous with praying, though praying is not mentioned at all. Just fasting is. And, but we, don't, we wouldn't really understand what would be the motive of fasting uh, unless there were some kind of religious connotation. It may be fasting in the sense that people were just so upset that they didn't eat. And uh, that may have been the case. But it, it's always been amazing to me with the book of Job that this is a book that's obviously supposed to be a part of the Hebrew canon. It's a book that... It's obviously about God's people, and it's a book about God working through his people, but it seems like it goes out of its way not to have anything to do with God. 
And I think since David brought it up, and we'll talk more about this a little bit later on in this class, but I think the purpose of this is to show you that even though you cannot put your hand on something that God is doing, even though you can't visibly see it and say that is something that God did, yet throughout this book, that's exactly what's going on. And it's brought out even more so in the latter part of this chapter. But good comment. Anything else? All right, so verse 4 says, So Esther's maids and her chamberlains came and told it to her. Then was the, king, then was the queen exceedingly grieved, and she sent raiment to clothe Mordecai and to take away his sackcloth from him, but he received it not. Now, help me out here a little bit. Esther heard that Mordecai was grieving, and she sent him some clothes to get out of his sackcloth. Now, what in the world is going on there? Michael, you act like you want to say something. But don't you get the impression, though, that she's not aware that what's, what's happening here, maybe? What, what are you going to say, Flo? No, but he couldn't, but he was at the gate. In other words, he was, you get the impression he was making a scene. Like, you know, I'm out here, and I can't go in, but I want to go in, and I can't because I'm in the sackcloth. In other words, look at me. I'm making a statement. Now, take everything that everybody else has said together. Evidently, Esther had no clue about this edict that had been passed. Now, why would that be the case? Well, yeah, and, and Xerxes doesn't come down there and say, listen, I'm going to do this. In fact, we're going to find out in a little bit that she hadn't even seen Xerxes for, for a whole month. And so remember how we said it had it set, how, how the houses were set up? Uh, you had the house of the virgins, you had the house royal, you had the house of the concubines. And as we brought it out earlier, you didn't come see the king even as his wife unless you were summoned because he might be with someone from the house of the virgins or he might have another concubine uh, there. Uh, you may have become a, a concubine of his after leaving the house of the virgins and go to his harem, but you may never see the king again your, the rest of your life. And so, as you said, Grady, they were sheltered there in that harem. They didn't turn on the news and watch cable news. They didn't get a newspaper. The only news they got is what they were told there in the harem. So, evidently, she had no clue what was going on. So, since she didn't have a clue what was going on, why do you think then she gave him clothes? Yeah? I almost get the impression, to piggyback on that, I almost get the impression she's trying to say, well, Mordecai, cheer up. It can't be that bad. Why don't you stop what you're doing? Here's some clothes. Get out of this funk that you're in. You really have no need. You've got a lot going for you. Why are you so upset? Right. Right. It's almost like um, you're embarrassing yourself, Mordecai. Let me, let me help you out here. My, my old man, he's kind of losing a little bit. We need to help him out. Yes. <clears throat> so what I'm hearing from all of you all is that there's the idea of, you know, whatever is wrong, I want to help you. Let's straighten this out. And also, I think there's some idea of proper decorum. I'm the queen. You're my, my father, my uncle, my father. You're there at the gate. You're making a scene. Let's just get things back the way that they meet. Let's solve this problem, if you will. And because um, she was not aware, as we're going to find out here in the very uh, next verse, of what was going on. She knew nothing about this edict that she was going to be put to death. And so verse 5 says, Then called Esther for... Hadok, one of the king's chamberlains, whom he had appointed to attend upon her, and gave him a commandment to Mordecai to know what it was and why it was. 
In other words, he refused his clothes. There's something big time going on. This is so unusual to Mordecai, and we're going to find out what it is. So in verse 6, you got Mr. Hadak uh, going into the street and talking to Mordecai, and Mordecai told him of everything that was going on. And verse 7 says, And Mordecai told him of all that happened unto him, and of the sum of the money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasurer, and for the Jews to destroy them. Also he gave him the copy of the writing of the decree that was given at Shusan to destroy them, to show it unto Esther. That leads us to believe she hadn't seen it yet. And to declare it unto her, and to charge her that she should go into the king to make supplication unto him, and to make requests before him and for her people. And Hatak came and told Esther the words of Mordecai. So now she knows what's going on. And verse 10 says, And again Esther spake unto Hadak, and gave him commandment unto Mordecai. Listen closely to what she says, because this is important. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come unto the king, unto the inner court, who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter, that he may live. But I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. So Esther sends a message back to Mordecai and basically tells him what? I can't, why can't she go in there, Grady? Hadn't called him. And um, the only way that a person could go see the king was for him to be summoned. And if somebody showed up in his, court, in his uh, palace room without being summoned... Um, there's basically two things that would happen. Either he would extend his scepter and they could come in, or if he withheld his scepter to his body, off with their heads. Or literally probably the Persians like to impale people, so they probably would impale them. Now, yeah, that's not a good thing. Now, what's interesting, archaeologists have found on walls down there in that region, in the old Persian cities, what they call bass reliefs. I don't know if you know what a bass relief is, but it's etchings on a wall. And all the, the cover, all the, these reliefs of pictures of the different kings and emperors of Persia show the emperors holding a scepter. So this was something that evidently he always had with him, and if somebody came into the court, uh, his court without permission, that scepter was used. Now here's a question that's interesting to think about. Why in the world did the king have such a law? So, so, what, so what you're saying is pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. <laughs> I thought it worked in the Wizard of Oz. They thought it was this crazy wizard. There's a little bitty guy behind the curtain. That's a very good point, that they, you didn't want people to get too close to the king, and they might realize he's not the divine person that he is, that he's just a mortal man. What's another reason why they would have this rule? Yes, Flip. Absolutely. You know, there are times where I wish I had a scepter. <laughs> because can you imagine the riffraff that would come into the courtroom if they just thought, hey, I want to go see the king? Uh, some of you remember, well, you don't remember. Some of you have read this. If you remember, boy, I want to talk to you because you're really old. But some of you have studied about when Andrew Jackson became uh, president, that they just opened up the White House and let everybody and their brother in there. I mean, it was pandemonium. It was crazy. Well, 
this day and age, if I want to go to the White House and see the president, they won't let me do that. Uh, the red tape and everything involved, um, I have toured the White House a long time ago. David was with me. I don't know if he remembers or not because he was a youngster. But, um, but there were some parts they wouldn't let me go in. And the reason is being I'm just, an, I'm just a citizen. You know, that's my house. I still can't talk to the president, and that's some of that that's going on there. He didn't want to be bothered with everybody that had any kind of axe to grind or anything like that. The only people that he wanted to see was the people that he requested. And um, so that kind of took care of a lot of, of, of things he would have to deal with. There's possibly a third reason this deal was, in, was put up. What do you think, Michael? Absolutely. Now, this guy already run into some problem with assassins. We know 14 years later he is going to be assassinated. But if a person comes into the courtroom without permission and the king doesn't raise the scepter, that's going to stop a whole lot of assassins. Unless they, they pick him off with 30 out 6 or something, you know, from a balcony or something. But, um, but that's probably the reason why this is going. So you can understand, now bringing all this up to make you understand and appreciate, this wasn't just some trivial thing. This was a major uh, royal policy. And it had a lot of reasons behind it. It wasn't just that this king was weird. This was a policy that all the kings followed because you didn't want just anybody coming in your inner court. And so basically the, the queen, you know, says, I've not been invited, by, I'm the queen, and I've not been invited by him in, in 30 days. And so you're expecting me, Mordecai, just to kind of show up and first of all shock him with the, the idea that I'm a Jew and also tell him I'm going to be the ones that are, one of the ones that's going to be killed. Now, I want you to think about <clears throat> probably some of the things that were going on in her head when Mordecai asked her to go talk to the king about this. I want you to think about all the different things that were, were against her in this situation. Like you started, like you want to say something, what was it? Absolutely. So you've got, uh, you've got the law against her as far as the scepter. You've got the order that Haman put out that was against her. You've got the idea of her has, has deceived the king in the fact that she, he didn't know she was a Jew. In that day and age, she had her sex against her. The fact that she was a female, and we've already talked about how females were looked at in this particular time period. And when she actually does go see the king, it was after a period of three days in fasting. And so she maybe had that going against her. She probably didn't look her best if she hadn't eaten for three days. And so um, her beauty would not be the, what the king was normally uh, would be used to. So she had a lot against her. So you can understand why she was hesitant about this and why she told, basically was telling Mordecai, you know, I, I'm concerned about this, and I'm not sure how this plan is going to work out. So anything else before I move on? Oh, yes, Michael, go ahead. Okay, we'll get to the fasting here in a little bit. The fasting she does, but you, you know, if you, you can just keep it in your head and we'll talk about it when we get there if there's something you want to say. So anyway, in verse 12, they told Mordecai Esther words. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, and this is what he says. He tells her there's a lot going on in the next couple of words here. He says, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. 
But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed, and who knoweth whether thou art come to this kingdom for such a time as this. A lot going on there. First thing he wants to make sure that Esther understands is the fact that if she does not go see the king, what's going to happen to her? She's going to die. In fact, it's an interesting play on words where it says, um, uh, Think not that with thyself that thou shalt escape the king's house. Literally in the Hebrew, there's the idea, do not think that you'll be the only one who escapes. It's almost like the idea that, that Mordecai is thinking that Esther is saying, well, you know, this decree went out and it's going to kill all the Jews, but somehow or another I'm the exception to the rule. Maybe because Mordecai didn't know, I mean, the, uh, Xerxes didn't know that she was a Jew, or somehow or another this edict didn't fall, uh, cover her, if you will. But Mordecai says, you're not the exception to the rule. You're going to die too. Yes, great. Absolutely. Well, it's, it's the law. It's the law of the Medes and the Persians. It has to take place. Yeah, and so just because she's the queen, and as Karen or somebody pointed out earlier, you know, didn't work for Vashti, you know, they can take care of Vashti, they can take care of her. So the first thing he wants to make sure she understands that is that don't think you're going to be the exception to this rule. That some, you'll, be, you'll be killed too. But then he makes a very important point that's for all of us. He says, for if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall, there, or then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. Now he's saying, if you don't do what you're supposed to do, what's going to happen? All right. He says, Esther, you're supposed to be the one that takes care of this. But if for some reason, you, you're a free will creature, you've got a choice. If you decide not to do this, David said God's going to figure out a way to take care of it. Now, why in the world would Mordecai make such a statement, and how would he know to say such a thing? Wait a minute, he was in sackcloth and ashes. He, he was wailing bitterly because of what was going to happen to the Jews. He tells Esther, this is our, this is our chance to escape. You've got to go see the king. Esther said, I'm not sure about that. Well, Esther, if you don't, God's going to provide another way. He didn't use the word name God, but he says another way is going to take care of it. And we had discussions before about we're not sure how good a Jew Mordecai was. But yet, evidently, he understood the covenant promise of the Israelite people. He understood the promise that God made to Abraham, that from your seed will all the nations of the earth be blessed. And he knew that the Messiah hadn't come yet. He knew that this wasn't the end of it. And he knew God keeps his covenant. So he knew somehow or another it was all going to work out, even if Esther didn't do what Esther was supposed to do. Yes, Karen? In fact, that's exactly what he says at the latter part of the verse 14 when he says, whether thou art come to this kingdom for such a time as this. He's basically telling Esther to review her life and think about the fact that everything in your entire life has led you up to this point. And like you said, he may be making reference to the fact that there was Joseph who was sold into slavery and went through everything that he went through, but he was in the right place at the right time to save the Israelite people during the famine. There was Moses who was supposed to be killed, but he was brought into the house of Pharaoh 
And he rose up to bring the people because he was in the right place at the right time. Yes, great. Absolutely. And that's a powerful lesson for all of us. I believe that that happens today. I believe that God has a divine purpose for each and every one of us. Now, we have a choice whether or not we're going to look at that divine purpose. And we also need to look at the choice that sometimes we are in the situation that we are in for such a time as this. And it may be in our entire life that we were born in the right country, born in the right place, happened to take the right job, happened to have, find the right wife, happened to have the right children, hadn't had the, the, the specific education. Don't know how it all works because we're not God. But who knows that certain things in your life, you are there at that particular time for that particular reason to do that particular thing. To all carry out the divine purpose of God that's going on. Um, yes, Michael. And, and we're not sure how much of this is providential and how much of this is just coincidental. But in chapter 1, you've got Xerxes, even in his sin, getting rid of a queen so Esther could become queen. And she happened to be at the right place at the right time. Don't know if that was coincidence or if that was providential. I think the book is about providence, so I think it's providential. But I think also, as you look at this particular section, there was a book out many years ago um, called "The Knowledge of the Holy of, of the Holy One" by A. W. Dozer. And A. W. Dozer wrote a bunch of stuff about God. Um, if I remember correctly, he was the one that even talked about put us putting God in a box. Um, but anyway. Um, he, he made this illustration talking about this particular text about how that um, he used a big ocean liner that left from New York to London. And there's the captain of that ship, and the captain of that ship set the course, and that ship started on this journey to London. Well, the people on the ship were basically free to do whatever they wanted to do. They could eat dinner or not eat dinner. They could go to bed at a certain time and not go to bed at a certain time. They could stay below or they could go up on the deck. They could converse with people or not converse with people. They could be nice people or they could be bad people. Uh, they had choices. Anything they wanted to do on that ship that was within uh, the law um, of that ship, they could do. But there's one thing they couldn't do no matter how hard they tried, and that was alter the course of that ship. They had the freedom to do about anything they wanted to on that ship as a passenger, but they couldn't alter the course of that ship. And he uses that as an illustration of God and his divine purpose. This world, if you will, is a big ship. And God has a divine purpose for this world. And while we're on this world, we can um, make all the choices we need to make. We can do the things that either are good or bad. We can make the decisions that need to be made. But no matter what decisions we make in this life, it's not going to change the course of that ship or God's divine purpose. Now, God can use the people on that ship or on this earth as part of his divine purpose. For example, here we have Esther, but Esther could make a choice saying, I didn't want to do this. this. I'm too scared to do this. I'm not comfortable with this and made the wrong decision. But as Mordecai points out, that's not going to change the direction of the ship. That's not going to defeat God's purpose. And God's purpose is that the Jews were going to be saved because God had made the promise that from the seed of Abraham would come the Messiah. And so um, I think that's a powerful uh, lesson in the fact that um, God has a divine purpose for this world. God is in control of this world. But yet at the same time, he uses people, if you will, 
uh, to help carry out that purpose, but yet we all have a divine choice in that particular thing. Well, we're running out of time. Go ahead, David. And, and, and it's like I brought out earlier, Xerxes, when he got rid of Vashti, that was an awful thing. That was a terrible thing. It came about from, for terrible reasons. But yet God had his purpose still in mind and could use the sinfulness of man to even be turned back into uh, his purpose. Um, Xerxes was drunk. It caused Vashti to, get, to be gone. Xerxes was lonely. It caused him to pick a queen. Later on in chapter 6, Xerxes can't sleep. And he says, somebody go bring me a book and read it to me. And they read to him about Mordecai. And that changes everything. And so it just shows you how sometimes a person just losing some sleep can change history. And we'll talk more about that in chapter 6. But our time is up. Uh, The kids need to be coming in. We're past time, so we're going to stop there. But thank you so much for all your comments and your, your good attention and